Hi, I'm Snowy Franklin, a creative writing student at Southern Cross University. Last year, I was part of the student reporting team at the Byron Bay Writers Festival. It was great to be immersed in an event that's all about words and ideas, and to get practical experience in turning stories around quickly. We produced a daily blog, and we also got to interview some really cool people like Benjamin Law, Ashley Hay, and Jesse Blackadder. Here's my interview with Ben Law. So I know you read a lot of magazines. Did you did you start working for one? straight away out of university? Yeah, I mean, I was huge into magazines because I think I was just of that generation where dial-up modems were coming in when I was in high school, and so my access to the outside world was really like television and, and, and magazines, so I hoarded them, um, and that was really the ultimate goal, just to work for a glossy magazine that I really loved. So when I was doing um, my creative writing degree at QT, um, I was doing, uh, I started off doing work experience for a, a street press magazine, like a free music magazine. Then I was uh, writing for it. Then, weirdly, I was doing production design for it because I had that skill under my belt, like I'd acquired that under the way. And I was editing a student newspaper later on. And then I think by the end of the degree, um, I just started writing for, like, the, the Career Mail, which was, you know, still oh, a broadsheet wow. newspaper okay. at that stage. So I was doing all of those things in tandem because I think uh, I think in my second year I had a panic attack and I realised that um, <laughs> a, a degree in creative writing didn't translate necessarily right. into a job in creative writing. You kind of have to hustle. So I was oh. like, I'll start the hustle early. So how did you pivot back into just doing your own creative stuff? Well, I kind of thought of that stuff as my own creative stuff in a way because I wanted to write big feature articles. Um, non-fiction was my thing. Um, I was studying alongside novelists and playwrights and poets, and I really love all of those things, but it wasn't necessarily where my head was at. But I didn't want to do a plain journalism degree because I didn't want to be a daily news journalist. I wanted to write, like, 4,000-word um, magazine features that required research and interviews and all that sort of stuff, but I also wanted to craft a story. So I was in that kind of, in a way, sweet spot because non-fiction's arguably easier to get out there on a regular basis. And how do you stay productive across all the different stuff that you do now? Well, I mean, the glib answer is I have to because if I don't, I'll die. <laughs> uh, because all of, my, all of my income is derived from my work or stuff that's related to work like writers festivals or talking at schools or even emceeing stuff that's related to my work um and i i think i'm kind of lucky in that i like changing gears pretty quickly i get bored very easily that maybe that's just my very cliche millennial brain but um and i've also been lucky in that uh even though I wanted to ultimately just be a magazine features writer, um, the opportunity was kind of presented to me to write like a, a book, um, an anthology of personal essays, because I'd written personal essays for another anthology. The publisher was like, do you have a book in you? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'd never thought of it before. Um, so I'm really one of those lucky bastards who had someone else suggested a career path. And I'm like, sure. And then... That book, The Family Law, um, had the film rights sold, and I had luckily finished a postgraduate in screenwriting that I just didn't think I would use. But I'm like, I know the basics, I know how to use Final Draft. I didn't know anything about screenwriting, it turns out, because, you know, studying and working in any field is very, very different. But I learnt on the job. Um, 
and then now, luckily, that was an education in itself. So now I'm, I can be in TV writers' rooms and and, and develop other people's ideas or, or yeah. pitch my own, and and that's very similar to playwriting. So that's what I'm doing at the moment as well. So it's. It's been a really happily messy career um, trajectory, and I think that's kind of what you, what you kind of have to be to an extent as a as a person in the creative industries. You have to be pretty nimble and opportunistic. Mm. I was actually um, exposed to your um, work in a unit for university, actually. <laughs> um, oh God! <laughs> it was Australia, Asia, and the world, and we watched one of the episodes. Um, Oh, of the family law. Of family law. And oh, I, yeah. I also grew up in a, a big family. Yeah. Um, I had five siblings. Oh, I know what. You were one of six. I was one of six. Yeah, and right. Which number child. are you? Um, oh. One of the middle, too. Yeah. And okay, so, so middle, middle middle kids represent. Middle kids represent. Yeah, yeah, so I actually found a lot in there that I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is exactly. I'm so, I'm so glad you say that because, you know, I think when the show came out, um, which is about uh, Asian, specifically Cantonese, Chinese, Australian family, um, growing up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, we were like, is this going to be a bit niche? Uh, and what's been great is like how many people who aren't necessarily even from that ethnic background are like, well, that's my family because my mum's really inappropriate. I'm yeah. one of many, many siblings. I come from a huge family. My parents got divorced. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that shouldn't surprise me because I was, you know, I was watching a lot of white families, especially growing up, going, oh, that's that's my family. Yeah. It, it, sh- it shouldn't surprise me that it works in reverse. I'm happily surprised that, yeah, it, that no, it does. The similarities are... Are crazy. There's never a dull moment. Everyone's in each other's business. Yeah, it's completely. Kind of like, no privacy. No, no privacy. boundaries. No, no. <laughs> so, and I'm guessing that's provided a lot of material for what, for obviously. Well, yeah, my family has kind of been like the engine of creativity, and and in a way, like I'm I'm kind of I've always been thinking of my family. I. I think my family's had such an interesting history and story. And even now, um, you know, we've just finished this two-part documentary series for the ABC called Waltzing the Dragon. And ostensibly, it's about Chinese-Australian history, but it's actually a quest. You know, one episode's with my mum, and it's a road trip, and the other episode is with my dad, and it's a road trip between Australia and China, looking at our own history, but then it becomes a national search for... Chinese-Australian history, which spans over 200 years at least uh, on this continent, and is something that we're rarely, that's rarely focused on in schools, outside of maybe, you know, the Chinese in the gold rush, and that's not when the Chinese first arrived in this country, and maybe Tiananmen Square, and that's it, but we're trying to fill in the pieces with that show, and that's definitely another way that um, you know, I've told another story, but through the lens of my family. So, growing up, I was a uh heterosexual mm-hmm. male and I didn't struggle to find representation in all of the places that I found it. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle to find that representation oh, growing up? And constantly. what were the challenges? You're talking to like a, a gay Chinese Australian dude who grew up in a pretty monocultural part of Australia as well, the Sunshine Coast. Um, and when I look at the broader politics, you know, um, there were very, very few Chinese people were growing where we were when we were growing up, but also like it was a pretty small part of the population now. Then it wasn't like it is now, which is um, 1.2 million Chinese people or Chinese Australians in this country with Chinese ancestry. More broadly, over one in ten Australians have Asian ancestry, and that's roughly how proportionate to how many Black Americans there are in the United States. You know, we're much more multicultural now. But growing up, there was definitely not that representation. There was 
these uh, on factual shows. You had like Lee Lin Chin reading SBS News, Cindy Pan, Annette Shun War. But then in scripted stuff, it was like, you know, random miscellaneous victim of racism. And they were really there to teach white people a, a lesson about yeah. racism, you know, and then they served their purpose and then they disappeared. And so I feel like we are starting to see the change of that in Australia. So we've had, you know, shows like The Family Law, which I made, mm. Homecoming Queens uh, on SBS, which my which my sister co-wrote and starred in. Um, you've got Ronnie Chang and what he's doing, Lawrence Leung, um, and then you're just starting to see more multiculturalism anyway. I think, you know, I think any Australian, no matter what our ethnic background is, we've always known that the communities we live in aren't really represented on screen very well. I think that's starting to change. It's not a revolution, but it's a start. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's awesome. Um, so, with the, the potential uh, religious freedom laws under discussion, what do you think the impact of these will be on the LGBTQI people who hold religious beliefs? Oh, that's a really interesting question, and I'm glad you brought framed it in that way, because I think... Um, Often the intersections are ignored in these conversations. So people are like, oh, well, there's queer people, and then there's religious people, and they're at loggerheads, and it's like, well, where does that actually leave the the very, very many, many, many um, LGBTIQA plus Australians who also are people of faith? And I think one of the ways also in which uh, we've discussed these religious freedom bills has been very much Christian-centred, whereas, you know, there are myriad religions um, practised in Australia. Um, And I think even the people who've really pushed for um, amendments or um, proposals to a religious protection bill haven't really thought about um, what it what it means for say the Jewish, the Muslim, the Buddhists, the the Sikh, the Hindu communities, and what they believe in, and what we're willing to protect. And I think we need to be more specific about what we're talking about because a lot of this has come out of uh, concerns that people can't freely express homophobia, and there will always be a tension between our freedoms to exercise religion in good faith and our freedoms not to discriminate because, um, you know, what we're often talking about when we're talking about religious freedom bills is the capacity for religious groups to discriminate. And I don't think it's as clear-cut as many of the people on either side of the debate have presented it. Um, And those on who overlap, the people that you're talking about, people of faith and people who are queer themselves, you know, what does it mean for, um, you know, a gay... A gay Muslim who's trying to figure out, well, how to live in this world to be able to practice their faith and not be discriminated against, while simultaneously not being discriminated against from people of faith because of their sexuality. It becomes far more complex and nuanced that I think uh, the debate's actually giving these discussions credit. Mm. So what's the... So where do we... So what's the solution? solution? Well, look, (laughs) the five-second solution is dot, dot, dot. Um, I'm not sure there is one, because I think that's going to be a constant wrestle. Uh, What I do think, though, is that there are some double standards. I think homophobia in Australian society, we've lived with it for so long, and... um, you know, I think there's still a lot of misogyny and uh, homoph- uh, misogyny, racism and, and ableism uh, that's within our society now. But I think we're so still used to homophobia. You know, we've only just um, gotten same-sex marriage across the board in this country that I don't think people really see uh, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia as 
equal in its capacity to harm the community as a lot of other forms of bigotry and prejudice. Uh, it's often framed as freedom of speech, whereas if I think someone from any religion or arguably even a cult, as some people have argued um, Israel Folau's religious sect is, because it does have very few members, it does preach things against the majority of other Christians, it, um, it's, it's mainly family-based, that sounds less like a religion to me, um, but if they were advocating, um, you know, potential discrimination, and I think what, what, what is tantamount to violence against women or other minorities, we would be having a very different conversation. So I think that needs to be kept in mind as well. I guess what I'm advocating for is far more nuance and talking about the specifics rather than saying all people should have the right to practice their religion. Well, at some point, at what point do we decide a religion can't, a religion, a religious practice can cause community harm? And that's, that's essentially what's being tabled. Yeah, thank you so much for doing the interview. It was an amazing experience even meeting you. It's a, it's a real honour and a pleasure. So, oh, thanks so much <laughs> for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.